All right, so this morning we are going to be looking at Genesis 34, and so you can turn in your Bibles. We're going to read it as we walk down through the text, so um, you can find it on page 74 in the Pew Bible if you need that. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 74, and you'll be ready to go when we begin to walk down through the text. Um, so I, I went on a walk last night, which I do pretty much every Saturday night. Um, whenever I go to pray, I typically walk because it helps me focus and keeps me from falling asleep. Because if you walk and fall asleep, usually that's a problem um, pretty quickly. So I went on a walk last night. It was around midnight. Now, granted, it was just in Shipley Heights, which is fairly safe neighborhood. Um, But it struck me last night that I wasn't worried. Even though there's some killer dogs in that neighborhood, let me tell you. (laughs) One in particular, man, the lady that walks that dog, I'm like, I really hope you don't ever lose your grip. So anyway, um, so that's a luxury that I usually take for granted. That's actually not my wife's experience, even in Shipley Heights. Not long ago, she was walking around, and there was a vehicle that followed her. I'm, I'm in, in our kind of kitchen area, and I see her, like, run around the car and kind of, like, duck down, and she's not, like, a skittish person. I'm like, what is going on? And so this guy literally followed her and then was, like, Waiting. This is at night. It's kind of a weird thing. And so I'm like, you know, watch out, man. Like, where's he at? And I, I literally started walking toward the vehicle and, like, started to, you know, yell at him a little bit. So, so anyway, I'm just saying, I take that for granted. Women don't. So, guys, women don't. So I read this blog post a while ago by Tim Challies. Tim Challies is a blogger. He provides all kinds of great content on the internet, book reviews and so forth. You can look him up at challies.com. And so he he wrote this reflection, and I don't know if this was after one run or several early morning runs, and he had these snapshots that he captured, and I was reminded of it last night when I was walking. So listen to this. The title of this post is, Are You Going to Hurt Me? I I think I've felt like this as a man a number of times on runs or walks um, around in our area. So as dawn breaks, I run across a lonely parking lot, cutting a long corner. As I pass a building, a depot of some kind, I spot a young woman walking. So he'd be about my age. She must be going to the neighborhood I've come from. Our paths will cross. She's 18, maybe 19. As I come closer, her eyes search mine and ask, Are you going to hurt me? Am I safe? Hurt you? I hear my mind say, I'm called to love, to love you more than I love myself. How could I ever hurt you? I'm grieved that the world is this way, that the world has become this way. I smile what I hope is an assuring smile and nod as I pass by. 
Second one, pitch darkness lit only by sporadic streetlights and occasional headlights. I run one of my new routes. Obviously, these are different runs, sorry. Down a brutal hill, back up, down, up, you know, up and down. Um, a woman in her 50s, perhaps, is on the sidewalk again, ahead of me. I approach her, the hill's steep grade propelling me almost to a sprint. She hears or senses me coming. She clutches something in her hand. Her body tenses, flinches a little. I think, I, I won't harm you. I would never harm you. I live by an ethic that says I need to be willing to die for you, even though I don't know you. Between breaths, I say, good morning, as cheerfully as I can. I continue down the hill, and by the time I loop back, she's gone. Third, I am far down a lonely walking path, a brilliant running path, forced on both sides. A teen girl approaches on her bike. She's all alone, far from anyone but me. She sees me. She digs into her pedals, urging her bike to go just a little bit faster. I see what looks like uncertainty in her eyes. Or is it fear? I think it's fear. Are you going to hurt me, they ask. I would never hurt you. I'd die before I'd hurt you. I step far aside to let her by. I smile. I say hello. I find myself hoping, praying she gets safely to wherever she's going. I hate the fear I see. I hate the questions their eyes ask me, but I don't begrudge them. I don't. I can't know their wariness, their fear. I get to run confidently in the darkness without backward glances, without ears pricked. But from all I hear, all I know, all I've read, their fear is well-earned and their questions legitimate. I have a privilege they do not, a privilege I take for granted. I'm haunted by words from Karen Swallow Pryor. A tweet, running on a deserted road today, I came upon an unfamiliar vehicle pulled over, trunk open, man standing next to it waving to me, called 911. An article, I was running uphill on a two-mile stretch of a private uninhabited dirt road when I saw an older model car with an out-of-state plate parked up ahead. A man was leaning against the car, smoking a cigarette. Quickly, I pulled my phone from the pack that holds all my necessities necessities and called my mother, whom I knew to be home. I stayed on the phone with her as I ran a wide berth around the man in his car. I could, I could stop to offer to help. I, meaning he, the man, writing. I could run by without making a phone call, without fear, but she can't. They can't. I hate it. I hate that it has to be this way. But it does have to be this way because ever since our first parents were ushered out of that garden, Men have proven their willingness to violate trust, to misuse strength, to blaspheme God's good order. Not all men, of course, but some men, enough men. Strength that was given to protect has been used to destroy. What was meant to bless has been used to harm. It has left this trail of fear this trail of hurt, this trail of devastation. Brothers, look and you will see. And when you see, you are on your way to acknowledging and perhaps even gaining a glimmer of understanding. The fear is there. The fear is real. Let's pray as we begin to dive into Genesis 34. 
Father, we know that these dynamics are very real and present in our twisted and broken world. And you know the experience of each one sitting here. We most certainly have victims among us. We may also have victimizers among us, perpetrators. And we all need to listen to what you have to say. Father, I pray that we would recognize the fact that you don't ignore these matters as uncomfortable as they may be to consider. As much as we may want to avoid them, we need to face them regardless of where each of us is and our experiences. We all need to hear from you this morning. So would you please make us, each and every one, open and receptive to what you have to say, to those who have been assaulted or abused or victimized in some way. Would you please enable them to hear from you your assessment of these wicked things, that you are not indifferent or ambivalent to them? Would you Enable them to be open to hear of your justice and your love and care, your heart. To those who, those of us who would rather just hear no evil, see no evil, would you grab us? the cheeks and look us in the eyes and melt the ice of indifference in our hearts and address us directly that we would have your mind and heart on these matters and that we would become your voice and ears to listen, your hands and feet, compassion and care and love tangibly experienced.
by those who are desperately in need of it. And Lord, if there are perpetrators and victimizers in this room, would you confront them and break them and cause them miraculously by your grace to truly own and repent and walk in the light and know that Jesus died even for perpetrators. So you know what we need, Lord, and we all need grace and truth this morning. So speak by your spirit and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at this passage. There's uh, an outline in the bulletin. The points will be up on the screen. And we're going to just walk through the passage and, and consider these four points. So first off, we see the defilement of Dinah. Okay, so Genesis 34, beginning in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. This is rape. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He, can we put quotes around that? Loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her, trying to woo her after he had violated her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl. Yes, that's about as sensitive as it really sounds, like in Hebrew. Get this girl for my wife. Same verb as verse 2, get me. He seized. <clears throat> so, 34.1, Dinah went out to see the women of the land. That actually most likely has negative connotations. That was most likely an unwise move, an imprudent move, especially to go out on her own. But the real fault lies with Jacob and Leah. She should not have gone out unchaperoned. She would have been around 15 or 16. And so, in a sense, this is exaggeration for the sake of the point, but you can imagine how unwise it would be to send your 15-year-old daughter to wander around Mardi Gras in New Orleans by herself. So, despite maybe those connotations, this sexual assault is not her fault. Okay, We, as the church of Jesus Christ, are not going to blame her for rape, no matter how she was dressed. You know what I'm talking about? So conservatives are used to saying, guns don't kill people. People kill people. But when it comes to sexual assault, sometimes the first response is about how she must have been dressed. 
Come on. Rape is never the fault of the victim. Was King David taking Bathsheba her fault because she was bathing on the roof? So this isn't just present in certain portions in the church. I'm not going to deal with the culture at large, but in the church, there's a history of this kind of interpretation. So if you look at thetorah.com, there's this you know, female PhD who says, who's the victim in the dinosaur? And she's Jewish, and she's representing some Jewish historical interpretation. And she writes this, The phrase, to see the daughters of the land, implies that she went to see how the Hivite women dressed or acted, perhaps, perhaps even to consort with them. You can imagine accusers asking, what would a nice Israelite girl be doing going out there? The verse may be understood as equivalent to the contemporary accusations against victims of sexual assault. She shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't have worn that. She shouldn't have been drinking. The rabbis, indeed, some of them, understood the verse as a criticism of Dinah. That's reading in, not understanding from the text itself. So in Genesis Rabbah 81, this is like in the middle of maybe 500, around 500 AD, Resh Lakish argues that a lewd mother will have a lewd daughter and offers the following proof. Do you remember back in Genesis 30, if you've been tracking with us through this series, Leah went out to meet Jacob and said, you must come in to me tonight, for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. Okay, if you were here. It's the same language. So they say, oh, see, like mother, like daughter. There's nothing new under the sun. The kind of foolish statements that get made today have been made throughout history. So let's be clear. This is rape, and it is not her fault. This was an egregious crime against Dinah. It was sexual assault. It was degrading and humiliating. She was defiled. That's the language that the text uses, that God uses in verse 5. She was dishonored and disgraced by him. So I titled this message, Disgrace and Outrage, and we're going to get to the outrage in just a few minutes, but I want to stop and just talk about the word disgrace for a minute. The same point applies for the word shame or to be ashamed. So what does the word disgrace mean? In English, it typically means to bring shame or discredit on someone or something using a verb form, or the loss of reputation or respect as a result of a dishonorable action, okay? So we use it both ways in the sense of it can mean the fault of the person being described, like he was a disgrace to his country on account of his traitorous actions. You can also be disgraced. So the first case Blame is appropriately, appropriately falling on you. In the latter, the disgrace is a result of something done to you. It's not your fault. But either way, you can feel like a disgrace. So if you were here this morning at 9 a.m., Laurie mentioned Diane Langberg, really, really important resource for understanding issues of abuse and trauma of all sorts, and she writes this, shame is a very painful feeling that seems to pervade a survivor's sense of self. 
we tend to feel a sense of shame when we've done something dishonorable or when something dishonorable has been done to us. Survivors often tell me, she's been counseling um, for 40 years, so she has lots of experience with survivors. Survivors often tell me they feel trashed. They feel a loss of dignity and a lack of self-respect. It's not a very big jump from feeling trashed to seeing yourself as trash. So you can feel like trash, like you are devoid of grace, like you are worthless, but that's not because you have disgraced yourself and you are at fault. It's because you've been disgraced, sinned against. So that's why I use the word disgrace, precisely because that can be such a struggle for a survivor to separate. You know, they feel guilty. If, if, if only I would have or wouldn't have, maybe it's really my, my fault. So it's important that we make a distinction between those two ways of using that word. They're not the same. Thankfully, Jesus comes to rescue us from both the disgrace we bring on ourselves and the disgrace that others can bring on us. And we need to be wise in the church to the distinction and also wise to how Jesus can deal with both kinds of disgrace, both kinds of shame. So, how then did Dinah's family respond to this disgrace, this defilement? Let's look secondly at verses 5 to 7. Sadly, we see some ugly passivity. We also see some real passionate emotion as well. So look at verse 5. Now Jacob heard, <clears throat> so this is her father. Jacob heard that he had, Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah. Already the narrator, the God-inspired writer here, is beginning to give you God's assessment. Defiled. Okay? He had defiled Jacob's daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry. They were beside themselves with rage because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So first we notice that Jacob is holding his peace. What should we make of that? Well, we'll consider it more in a minute, but I first want to point out two other things that we might easily miss. First off, Jacob actually made a vow back in chapter 28 when God appeared to him at Bethel. Okay? Remember, he put the little stone up and commemorated that, that time. And he made a vow that he would return to Bethel and that's actually the place that he should have gone back to to build an altar. Altar. In fact, after the horrible events of this chapter, 
Chapter 31 is basically God commanding Jacob to get up and go to Bethel where he should have gone in the first place. So look at this quote by Bruce Waltke. Had Jacob pushed on to fulfill his vow at Bethel and to build his altar there, instead of buying land and building an altar at Shechem, this tragedy would not have happened. So there's actually negligence. We might miss that. But he, he stopped his pilgrimage too early. Again, why? Is it passivity? Is it because of trade opportunities? Is, who knows? But it was the wrong thing to do. He was supposed to keep going. There's another thing that we should notice about this chapter. It follows after the wrestling match. Remember chapter 32? At the end of the wrestling match, what happens? He gets a new name. What's his new name? What's he called in this chapter? Hmm. What did his new name symbolize? That he had wrestled with God and with man. Like there was the beginnings of faith. He's wrestling with God. There's good things starting to happen. And this is like reverting back to the old Jacob. And so the narrator is cluing you in to the tone of things by using his name, his old name, rather than his new one. He is not striving with God or with man here. He should be striving against Shechem and Hamor here. He's passive, sinfully, pathetically, maddeningly passive. So he was passive not to push ahead and fulfill his vow, all the way to Bethel. And when he heard of how Shechem defiled his daughter Dinah, he was silent and passive. Why? Like, certainly he's capable of strong emotions, judicial sentiments, instincts, right? You remember how he berated Laban when Laban tracked him down, you know, after he had left with his family? He had been cheated all those times, and Laban, you know, comes after him, and he finally just lets him have it, right? So he's capable of this. So why did he hold his peace? Why was he afraid to call out this crime? Was it because it would risk their safety? Was he just kind of being shrewd here and waiting until his son showed up as backup? Was he indifferent to the suffering of an unwanted daughter? This is the daughter of Leah, you know, the whole like crazy circus with Leah and her maidservant and Rachel and her maidservant. What if this daughter had been born to Rachel? Do you think it might have been any different? So listen, the true disgrace in this passage already as we see it lies with Jacob in the way that he's handling things. It's disgraceful. So did you note what happens when Hamor, Shechem's father, comes out to talk to Jacob? Look at it there. Verse... Um, I'm sorry, verse 6. And Hamor the son of Shechem went out to speak, uh, out to Jacob to speak with him, and the sons really are the ones that are active. Jacob's sons do the talking. So we don't actually find much righteous response from Jacob. The righteous interpretation on what happened actually comes from Dinah's brothers. Look at verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry. 
Those are righteous responses to this. Because, like in Hebrew, hardly ever do you get because explanations. And when you do, it's like bold face underlined. God's saying, here's what's going on. I'm going to give you my perspective on this. So it's because this is an outrageous thing. This must not be done. When it says that those brothers were indignant, you know, the last time we heard that term, or deeply grieved, it's back in Genesis 6-6, when the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart before he sent the flood. This is a godly response here. So this kind of seizing a wife, it, there, there are some indications that there was some normalcy to it, sadly, in Canaan. But this is not okay with the people of Israel, with the people of God. That's what's going on here. This is outrageous. This must not be done. So in case anyone, especially those who have experienced injustice, assault, violence, abuse against themselves, and you're wrestling with where was God, which is totally understandable, and then you read the Bible and see these things happen, you could wonder if God even cares or if it's, is, is he just okay with this stuff happening? No, very clearly God speaks here and calls this what it is. So, Another commentator, Alan Ross, summarizes it well like this. The quote is up here. By describing the defilement as an outrageous thing, the text portrays it as a godless act that polluted the family. Such a sexual crime was an infamous deed, a sacrilege incriminating the whole community. It ought not to be done. The nation of Israel could in no way tolerate such blatant violations of God's moral law. The words of the sons thus put the crime in its true light. So, how should they respond then? How will they respond? Point number three, we'll look at the rest of the text here in verses 8 to 31. Deception and revenge. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem, so this is Shechem is the man who raped Dinah. Hamor's the father. He spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. You notice he doesn't apologize. Just goes right into, hey, can we work this out? You know, little treaty, marriage, bride price, what do we need to do? Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. So it's not just this marriage. It's a peaceful treaty, marriage treaty. Like we're going to be one people. We're going to become one people. You shall dwell with us. The land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property. Shechem, he's there, also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And again, as if it was okay for, her to treat, for him to treat her this way. There's no apology. Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a, as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem. Again, Jacob is silent. He's passive here once again. 
The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. So we have to call this what it is, too. This is a really ugly, sacrilegious use of the covenantal sign. It's chapter 17. God gives the sign of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. It was intended to be a sign of the merciful covenant of God and evidence of the faith of his people. But here, it's a symbol of how they're going to take vengeance into their own hands. Verse 18, Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, <coughs> saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. Huh. Doesn't even mention the marriage to Dinah. Just this is a little bit of spin. So there's like a double deception going on. Jacob's sons deceiving Hamor and Shechem, and Hamor and Shechem deceiving the men of the city. Just, hey, this is in your best interest. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking of everybody's best interest. No, he wants to marry Dinah. So they're spinning it. Just selfishness left, right, and center. Verse 24, And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of, the, of his city. It's kind of a, a phrase that means anyone who could bear arms, who would go out on behalf of the city to fight. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, Dinah's full brothers, she had four of them, but these are two of them, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house, so first we realized that she was basically kind of being kept captive. Is that why they were needing to be deceptive and smart and shrewd about this? Because they were actually in a weak position of weakness in this whole thing. Took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and all their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink 
to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Ugh. I mean, where is Jacob's moral outrage? Do you see how he responds? Do you see what he says? He doesn't rebuke them for their deceit. He doesn't rebuke them for their bloodthirsty, unjust revenge. Out of proportion. The focus of his rebuke totally misses the point. It's trouble on me. Oh, and then he throws in the household at the end. What about Dinah? He says nothing about Dinah. What about the injustice of this bloody massacre? What about the plundering of the city? So Hamilton makes a really brief and powerful summary statement. His concerns are tactical and strategic rather than ethical. That is disgraceful. Verse 31, but the brothers said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So even though these brothers have gone way over the line, taking vengeance into their own hands, who does the author give the last word in this chapter? He gives it to the statement of the brothers. And Jacob can't counter it. He's silent in response. So, okay. Oh, it's heavy. If we step back, we just see smoking wreckage, just disgusting selfishness all around in this passage. Obviously in Shechem, but also in Jacob, in the way Shechem and Hamor communicate to the townsmen, in the way the brothers loot and plunder the city. So this chapter, sadly, is about the rape of Dinah and the rape of the city. What do you do with this mess? Well, we should feel the way we feel. We should be disgusted. We should look around in despair and say, what can be done in this wretched, broken world? It's like scorched earth like left, right, and center. Are you tired of just turning on the news or hitting your news app and hearing of one more just violent scenario here, one more sexual assault there, one more person who's exposed for, you know, abuse of this kind? Like, aren't you tired of that? Like, what hope is there? You, you can only kind of live so long, you know, in this little isolated bubble, or you can keep running to avoid it, but pretty soon it's, it's going to strike pretty close. What hope is there? So some thoughts as we try to process this passage and deal with our own hearts and deal with God and learn how to deal with life in this broken, messed up, twisted world. So first, listen to the silence. What hope is there? There is hope. It's pointed to in this passage, and it actually is found if you begin to listen to the silence. The silence in this passage actually speaks pretty loudly. 
So first, we need to listen. We need to listen to the silence of Dinah. So again, Hamilton, this commentator, he says, throughout all of this violence and vendetta, not one word has been heard from Dinah. She is abused, avenged, spoken about, delivered, but she never talks. So if you were here at 9 o'clock, you heard Laurie mention the fact that when you suffer abuse, it steals your voice. You lose your voice. Trauma silences the voice of the victim. It takes away their voice. No one seemed to listen. Their protest didn't matter. Maybe your protest didn't matter. And then you have no words to describe what you've been through. And then what if you aren't believed? Or maybe you tried to let someone know and it was dismissed or treated lightly or even worse, and it silenced you again. So we must listen. We need to learn to listen to the voice of victims. Give space. Be willing to listen. Sadly, the church often doesn't listen well. Or we're too quick to speak when we ought to be silent. Or we're silent on the suffering of victims when we ought to speak out against injustice and call it what it is rather than ignoring it as if it doesn't happen as if these statistics that are on this resource sheet that was passed out, they're staggering. If it's really true that one in four to one in three women are abused, is it before the age of 18? How many people in this room? How many people in our church? How many people does this touch? And if we're not talking about this, is this really a safe place for me to risk saying what I have been through? We need to learn to listen. Her silence speaks loudly. Have you ever heard a, a sermon on Genesis 34? I never have. Did you want to hear this one? Did you read that email? You know, you're reading your emails on Friday, right? Did you read that email and you're like, ah. Maybe that's a commentary. Maybe there's something to learn there. A parable even. Why do we not want to read Genesis 34 or hear a sermon on it? We want to walk quickly from Genesis 33 to 35. Hear no evil, see no evil, turn a blind eye. But when we avoid it, we aren't listening to God. We want to avoid it, but God won't let us. That's why it's in the Bible. That's why Genesis 34 is here, because we need to listen to everything that this chapter is saying. God doesn't want us to turn away from Dinah and from facing the fact that these kind of crimes and assaults against souls and bodies have taken place all around us, do take place all around us, have taken place to some of us. So here, those of us, you know, me walking through the neighborhood last night, I have the luxury of not being afraid. 
Some of us have the luxury of skipping Genesis 34, and we've done it for a long time. Do you think Dinah would like to skip Genesis 34? There are people in this room that don't have the luxury to avoid it. They live with it every day. And the rest of us can comfortably enjoy the luxury of just skipping from 33 to 35. And you're here this morning, I think, by God's sovereign appointment. By the way, we didn't plan the fact that this mission's emphasis would be on the same morning that we planned Genesis 34. God did that. I think he might be up to something here as far as sensitizing us as a body so that we really do become a safe place for people who have suffered. So only we who have not been abused or assaulted have the luxury of avoiding this chapter, but those who have been assaulted and abused have had to deal with a not only the first injustice, but our typical, it's, it's too typical, avoidance of this chapter, of these issues. Our avoidance of their suffering, our silence. So there's another silence we need to listen to and we need to address. The church is filled with people who turn away from this kind of suffering. It can't continue to be that way. So we need to listen to Psalm 34. There is grace shining in this dark passage. Here it is. God sees Dinah, and he wants all of us to see her. God's not turning his face after, like, turning away, ooh, after this horrible act of defilement. He's acknowledging her as the victim of violation and making it clear that this was wicked and that it was the fault lies with Jacob and with Shechem. The brothers have different kind of culpability. So, I don't know about you. I don't, I don't want this chapter to be in the Bible. I didn't want to preach this sermon, but then I'm rebuked and saying, wait, no. No, we've got to preach on Genesis 34. Of course we wish that rape wasn't a part of this world. It's wicked, it's wrong, but on the other hand, praise God that this chapter is in the Bible. He calls that wicked thing what it is, and he makes it clear that he sees each and every Dinah. So you can imagine how people would question, where is God in Genesis 34? Is he silent? Why is he silent in this chapter? No, he is speaking in this chapter, and we pointed out the places where the judgment, the evaluation of this thing is made clear. But I read a little article by a lady named Wendy Stringer this week, Does Christ Speak in the Rape of Dinah? So I think you might have it on the screen here, you follow along. This is helpful. When we witness Dinah's violation and betrayal, watch revenge unfold in the name of justice, wrestle with the seeming silence of God and search for answers, we hope for someone who will do better, someone who can save Dinah. Dinah's voice seems eclipsed by her awful circumstances. Does God tell her story? Yes. 
every time Genesis 34 is read, both by what is written and what is not written. For example, Jacob holding his peace in verse, verse 5 speaks, and we've considered what that says. Dinah's mothers and sisters absent in verses 8 to 17. That speaks people that should have spoken up, been on your side, that were close to you, maybe did not. The unheard cries of the Hivite children and women in verse 29 speak. Can you picture that scene of slaughtering all the men, tens, hundreds? And what's going on with those women and children? Moses, inspired by God, inspired by God, not to mention God, speaks. Because there's one sense in which the reason why this is so such a mess is because God is not being trusted and considered, but God is speaking through that silence in many other ways. When we hear stories bankrupt of God's presence, we must also hear Psalm 56, 8 speak. You have kept count of my tossings, my, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The tears of this suffering world are not forgotten. Jesus writes them in his book. We listen as he speaks hope to us, and we speak that hope to others as well. Listen to this. Dinah's fathers and brothers fail her terribly, and we are left hoping someone better will save her. Our neighbors have also been disappointed by loved ones, and we understand this heartbreak. Psalm 2710 says, My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Our Father in heaven will not wait to come to us in our suffering. Jesus, our older brother, instead of shedding others' blood, allowed his own to be shed, and in him is the hope of the world. The father and brother who never disappoint he is the one we speak to this disappointed world. So Jacob was this passive father, negligent, indifferent, silent. Your heavenly father put this text in his word because he sees and he knows and he acts. And these brothers take matters into their own hands, justice and vengeance. Jesus was completely cut down for us. And ultimately, justice will be done in the end for anyone. Nobody's getting away with anything in this universe. The lack of justice compels us to look to, God, to the God of Dinah's story. He who will not let the cries of the oppressed go unheard or unanswered Psalm 10, 17 to 18 says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. For those who have struck terror and like Shechem refuse to grieve over sin and admit guilt, judgment will be terrible and final. So justice is coming and Jesus took our sin so that hope can be ours as well. So just one final word here of exhortation to us as a church before we sing a final song and close. You have Jacob and you have passivity. You have the brothers 
righteous anger, but falling over into ugly, bloodthirsty vengeance. So do you see how both of those are wrong reactions here? Instead, this path of not passivity, but active justice and compassion, moving toward, not running away from, avoiding, shrinking back. So active justice and compassion, listening, loving, moving toward people who have suffered and are suffering, and then not taking matters into our own hands, waiting on the Lord for ultimate justice and vengeance. Okay, so not passivity, not silence. We must speak up. We must listen. We must believe. We'll believe you. If you've gone through this, you've never talked to somebody, we will listen to you. We will believe you. Talk to Laurie. Talk to Miriam. If you weren't here at 9 o'clock, listen. We'll send out the link to the seminar they did at 9 o'clock. And we want to care for you. This may be something that you buried years ago and you just threw away the key. But the Lord wants to bring healing to you. So we want to be a safe place here. So not passive, not trying to take matters in your own hands. Instead, this Christ-like path of active compassion and love and also, justice, but not sliding into vengeance. So as the musicians come up, um, we'll sing our final song. Just listen to the words of this song by Andrew Peterson that uh, Tyler pointed out to me this week. I think it just is hope-giving and encouraging. It's called Rise Up. So that's not the song we're going to sing, but it's just an encouraging song um, just as we look around the smoking wreckage in this broken world, listen to the words of this song, and then we're going to close by singing, uh, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. So, every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. And you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon where you will rise up in the end. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Because he will rise up in the end. He will rise up in the end. I know you need a savior He's patient in his anger, but he will rise up in the end. And when the stars come crashing to the sea, when the high and mighty fall down on their knee, we'll see the sun descending in the sky. The chains of death will fall around your feet, and you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end.